in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, explorers of the Sacred Library. I'm Nico. I'm Ben. And you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. Are you ready for another round of stupendous stories? You'd better believe it. We're joined today by someone described by the scrolls as a novelist and a translator. They've published two novels with a third on the way, and over 30 short stories. They've also translated countless works from Spanish to English. Bueno. Not only that, but they have published a million words as a journalist. It's my pleasure to welcome Sue Burke. Hi, Sue. Hello. Good to be here. Excellent. Um, how has this uh, very, very strange year been uh, in Chicago for you? Um, pretty quiet, actually. Um, don't go anywhere, don't see anyone other than on Zoom, and so I sit around and write. And uh, you mentioned before uh, before we started recording that uh, you actually live in a skyscraper with a pretty, pretty stunning view. Yes, I live the. I'm only on the seventeenth floor, but only I live in a building <laughs> only seventeenth. The building is fifty-five stories tall. That is, and the biggest one on the north side of Chicago. And um, yeah, I, I can see for a good ten, twelve miles from my house, awesome. whatever that is in British miles. <laughs> <laughs> one of those British miles. Oh, Thirty-seven so, crumpets per queen. That is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's the rough, the rough uh, ratio. Um, so I actually have a uh, fairly serious uh, thing about heights. So I'm not entirely sure I could live in a skyscraper. Oh, and then you would love this because the walls are all exterior walls are all glass. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I would hate that. <laughs> it is a great place to be in a storm. Oh, that does sound really cool. No, I just I like I felt my stomach just turn over when you said it because I immediately just had this no. image of the building, the building just going over in my head. It it does if if it's really windy, the building shakes a little bit. Nope, I and don't. It like, sways I just like. You know. <laughs> well, no. you start packing, Ben, because we have got somewhere for you to move. <laughs> but in the meantime, I think it's uh, I think it's about story o'clock, isn't it? Definitely. So you're going to start us off this week, Ben, and I'll prompt is rebooting. Rebooting. Issue one. What a place to grow up. Perfectly mowed front lawns and picket fences in good repair bracket a well-cared-for road. A high school senior rides his bike on the wide pavement and dodges the younger kids who've chalked out a hopscotch for the weekend. His parents' house is a blue weather-boarded idyll. The white shutters are latched open to let in the late spring air. His long legs swing off the bike and he wheels it around the side of his house with a practiced motion. Out back, the pool beckons enticingly after the sweat of his ride home. Dumping the bike against the wall, he wriggles out of his jeans and kicks his shoes off after them. Half skipping towards the cool water, he strips his undershirt and plaid button-up off together in one motion. Gathering momentum, bare feet slapping on the short grass, he takes a final stride and leaps. Those long legs come up and he hugs them to his chest a moment before falling like a meteorite into the still water. Liam Robinson felt the bottom of the pool touch his heels and butt before he kicked instinctively back to the surface. Breaking through to the air, he took a big gulp of it as he trod water. Huh. I thought that would be the moment that I wake up. He said to himself, for the reader's benefit. Hey, honey! His mother's voice jumped into his ears. I hope you don't mind, but Lucy offered to help me at the store and I thought you two could have a study date whilst I cook dinner. Liam's jaw dropped to see his mother, looking no older than 40, coming out of the garage. Behind her was a heavily laden Lucy, struggling with the grocery bags. A doubly strange moment of deja vu and horror swept him along and he swam with the tide to the edge of the pool. He remembered this moment of embarrassment, deck chairs waiting for it. Sure enough, the splash happened and as he walked towards the edge, he could see that the pool was glowing with white light. Staring down into the disturbed water, he saw the flashes of purple that had entranced him the first time around. Here we go again, said Liam to the reader, before stepping off the side. 
Issue 23. Manic Man knew he was deep in the run now, somewhere around the fourth trade paperback. It was difficult to remember the singles beyond a handful that were seared into his memory. His arc soared over single issues to create big bridges of characterization the readers loved to stroll across. His powers had come in and he was flexing them like an atrophied muscle. His foreknowledge of the upcoming villains gave him more time with Lucy. He'd put oversized cyborgs through buildings before they'd finished revealing their master plan, and when the tenebrous mishmashes of people and animals had emerged from the sea, he'd swept them up quickly. Dr. Ruin hadn't even got his medical license before Manic Man found his lair this time. All of it meant more dates, dates that he could finish without being called away. Liam found himself truly happy, but knew he had to wait until issue 50 to propose to her. So far, no one else had spoken to him out of turn. No villains, other heroes, or even side characters seemed to know what was going on like he did. Just like school, some things were different. The more problematic names or power sets for the other superpowered people had been tweaked. Some costumes were less revealing or in a different colour scheme entirely. But for the most part, Liam was becoming Manic Man in the same way he had done before. Issue 54. It was coming. He could feel it. He was fighting literal fires on multiple continents every day now. Sinister alien invasions, interdimensional gladiators looking to tussle, run-of-the-mill supervillains. Even corrupt politicians perverting the democratic process to leverage the power of nations for their own nefarious ends. Manic Man was earning his name as he flew at near light speed around the planet, dealing with all of them on behalf of humanity. Even as a young superhero, he could feel his energy waning. He remembered that feeling well and knew too that it wouldn't stop when she died. That galvanising moment would give him the grit he needed to go on for years. Disaster after disaster and arc after arc. The last minute Pyrrhic victories would weigh on him until his final heroic sacrifice. He couldn't live it again without her. When the time came, he let the fires burn whilst he waited, floating silently above that intersection. As her car crossed over under the green light, he saw the perpendicular drunk driver coming. They'd missed the change in the lights as they fumbled for the cigarette they'd dropped in their own lap. Liam shot forward and took the weight of the car's impact in his palms. His boots left dark marks on the road as he let himself be pushed back slightly to soak the momentum. Behind him, Lucy's car slipped away after only a slight panicked swerve. She pulled up on the curb and got out. Her relieved smile lit up his world. Issue 1 Liam Robinson felt the bottom of the pool touch his heels and butt before he kicked instinctively back to the surface. Breaking through to the air, he took a big gulp of it as he trod water. Fuck, no, please, I had it right. Don't make me lose her again, he said to the reader. That was really cool. The whole uh, groundhog, groundhog arc concept, I really, really dig. It's, you know, obviously we're big comic book fans, and the idea of someone knowing what's happened with every reboot poor superman would be nuts by now wouldn't he well this that's sort of where it began i was you know thinking about the, the amount of times that um you know even in movies you get you get the origin stories of a of a superhero so many times like spider-man or batman or whatever um and the idea that they remembered all the times that they've been rebooted would be yeah it would drive you insane quite quickly i think really nice touch as well with um like the slight modifications to the social context of the comic. Mm-hmm. So the little changes to the costumes and what the people around him looked like, that was a really good way of like showing it was now and he had like an older origin. I like that. But but one overriding goal. One overriding goal, yeah, yeah. It was um this idea that he couldn't yeah, he couldn't he couldn't live live his life again, even even with all of his awarenesses of what he was and you know, the fact that he was in the comic book, like he couldn't um he didn't want to lose the uh the person that was his sort of inciting moment mm-hmm. to become the, the sort of major hero that he was. It's a bit like Spider Man going back and uh preventing the uh the death of Uncle Ben or something, isn't it? Catching Gwen at the bottom of the tower. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um him meta knowing that he was in a comic was cool as well. That uh, 
or did he know it because it felt sometimes it felt like he really knew but other times that it was a framing device or where where would they, yeah, where do you I think it was, that? I think I think it was I was definitely sort of straddling those two. It's it's somewhere in yeah. that little bit of grey area. Um, largely because I didn't want to just rip off um, Deadpool. Okay, I see, I see it. No turn to camera, kick through the fourth wall. No, no, it, uh, the intention was to avoid that, but um, this idea that he, like he he sort of he's picked up the habit of talking to himself because there's a reader. Yeah. And stuff like that mm. was, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I had, I had a lot of fun with it. Like initially, I thought that the idea, uh, the the prompt is actually quite hard. Um, yeah, theoretically, um, it's, it's easy to get stuck on uh, without spoiling anyone's upcoming stories. I hope, uh, but stuck on computers and restarts and that sort of thing, isn't it? So uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Let's let's not cover ground that might be covered, but. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough one, and it's sort of difficult to know what makes a good prompt sometimes. And in in my experience, sometimes the simplest thing works just fine, and sometimes not. Yes, very much so. And it's it's almost it's a, it's a bit of a strange cocktail as to which, you know, whether it works or not really. Um, but having said that, you know, uh, sometimes struggling with a prompt can be really cool. Like um, this was like my fourth, I think, idea for this prompt. Yeah. Um, mm. And I had a lot of fun with it, and it, and it, 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 I deliberately, I deliberately picked it as the the hardest approach I could take to it, from yeah. the ones that I had, uh, because I wanted to have a go. Because it's, I, I found it very strange I, to write about superheroes in prose. Yeah, does it's that make very, sense? It's a super yeah. cinematic medium, isn't it? So much yeah. is told through image. Hmm. Um, which I think why a lot of the drama happens through the structure and the re you know the rebooting cycle and stuff of this rather than it being like i kind of gloss over the stuff that's actually like we don't even know what his powers are really yeah we know that he's he can fly fast and he's pretty strong um yeah so yeah i had a lot of fun with it it's um i'm glad i i want i want more manic man i do expect him to return <laughs> i i could not i could not shake he was he was going to be uh, Hyperman, but that's taken. He was going to be Ultraman, but that's taken. Yeah, uh, I even toyed with Vigor Man, but I thought that sounded like a kind of blue pill. Um, <laughs> it does sound like his comic would be sponsored by Ridolin as well. <laughs> <just> like... <laughs> yeah, Manic Man. Um, but now I thought, you know what? You know, if he is just jetting around the place at nearly light speed, solving things for people, and it's quite, it's quite manic, isn't it? Um, so yeah. Anyway, there we are. Uh, however, let's uh, let's move on. Um, Sue, I believe you have a story for us. Yes, I do. I see a vision. A wall of water is going to crash like an avalanche through the city over buildings and people. It will break them. It will drown them. It will leave bodies strewn like flotsam amid the rubble. I run screaming to the market. A great wave is coming. Flee now. A woman selling fish sneers. The gods have told you this? Poseidon speaks to you? We can see the water from here. The sea is calm. The sea is false. The sea is lying. The market is crowded. The port of Falara is busy. And yet, to me, it all looks like ruins. Tears stream down my face. A wave is coming. A baker looks at me from the doorway of his shop. Demons, he mutters. No. It is revenge. I cursed Poseidon, and he cursed me in return. He has made me know things, true things. The woman selling fish abandoned her ill husband in another province of Greece. The baker has a cache of coins buried next to his oven. They scorn me, but I do not hate them. I hate Poseidon. I want to deny him his victims. We must flee. Run. Now. No one looks my way. Have they all suddenly gone deaf? Is this another trick of that god? You should flee, Herodon. People laughed. They were listening. They see me tear out my hair. Some of them know me, know that my husband and family were lost last month to a shipwreck. They know I am mad with grief, haunted by the god of the sea. A wave is coming. I flee as fast as my old legs can run out of the city, 
past the vineyards and halfway up the highest hill. A dark line rises on the sea at the horizon. I close my eyes, but I have already seen what will happen. When Poseidon has finished his devastation, I return, passing bodies carried up into the vineyards, climbing over rubble, wading through stinking pools filled with ashes and trash, and there, next to the baker's oven where the soil has washed away, is a leather purse, and inside it, I know, will be silver. I shriek at the sea, the water now calm and stained brown by its plunder. Take this curse from me! And suddenly, I stand among a crowd of people on a hillock overlooking a long beach. The sea rages in a storm. Wind drives cold raindrops like needles into my face, and Poseidon howls jubilant at imminent death. Again, I know what will happen. I know this place too, this wild seashore. I have lived here since I was a lass, the word they use here in Ireland for girl. We live conquered by the people of the neighboring isle, Britain, which now wages war against Spain. The defeated Spanish ships sail past us en route to escape. Or rather, they try to sail through the storm. Their captains do not know these waters, these shores, and their cliffs, and they sail lost. We are forbidden to help them as we watch Poseidon drive them aground. Wood rends against rocks. Men scream into the smashing waves. Hundreds, hundreds of voices crying out with their last breaths. I wail like the banshee I am, and banshees are respected here. British soldiers hunch through the wind to capture survivors who will be strung up on gallows, but a few survivors will wash ashore farther down amid the rushes, and I will send our men to help them escape. Madness is a thing of the gods and those who worship mad gods. Madness is no longer mine. My curse is immortality. And so I am tormented life after life by Poseidon's earthquakes, monsters, floods, drownings, and wrecks. Life after life, I fight back each time with the skills that the passing centuries give me to use. Navigator, doctor, admiral, meteorologist, seismologist, hydrologist, and oceanographer. I learn his tricks and how to defeat them. I save lives. But everywhere he can, he manifests to mock me. As I plan a barrier across the River Thames to guard London against storm surges from the sea, the ground shakes beneath me, the building rattles, my chair tips, and I fly backwards. My coworkers felt nothing. As I install a seismometer as part of Japan's earthquake early warning system, I return to my car and find it filled with water. The police vow to discover the vandal but do not notice the gods' bubbling laughter. As I examine maps and weather data to predict the path of a hurricane, the wind in my mind shrieks like 10,000 doomed souls that only I can hear. I vow to work through my deafness to save every soul. Humanity's mastery of the physical world grows to encompass the earth and beyond. As I work at a space station, I discover I am outside Poseidon's realm and reach. For the first time in well more than 2,000 years, my God-haunted ears enjoy silence. In space, no one can hear ancient earth gods scream. In that peace, I devise a plan to undo the curse and avenge myself. Step by step, life by life, my work continues. Now I serve aboard a spaceship, a small spry vessel with a pioneer crew of six flitting around an ice asteroid as large as a glacier. We are orbiting the planet Mars, 
The asteroid is one of many icy behemoths gently prodded year after year from the asteroid belt toward the red planet. The pilot points to a sonar projection. Here's a fault line, she says. We can break off a piece here. I get to work setting the laser array. Ready? A burst hits deep within the crevice and water explodes into vapor. Step by step, nudge by nudge, pieces break off and fall toward the planet. They will evaporate into the atmosphere, which grows steadily thicker and cloudier. In some places, it already rains on Mars. In a few places, water flows again, collecting into ponds. Eventually, Mars will have oceans. I glance up at Earth, that blue marble ruled by a mad water god. My curse on him has come true. He is trapped in the gravity well of that planet, where little by little, humans whittle away at his power. I have escaped to create a rival secular sea. I mutter, your games are getting old. He cannot hear me, but he can see what I am doing as Mars slowly turns as blue as Earth. I am not like a god who plays with mortal lives as if they were toys. Here, he can no longer force rebirth on me when my lifetime comes to its natural end. My anger has turned to pity. I send him a prayer. Oh, great Poseidon, change your ways. Learn from me. You too have the power to refashion a world into a blessing and a wonderland. thoroughly enjoyed that so that was that was really cool i the way that that spanned so much uh time and uh societies and cultures really got me going i love stories like that and this idea of going from almost like a like an oracle to a to a banshee in ireland to you know a seismologist and and to, to an astronaut wow that's it really you really made that line obvious for somebody that's well, interested in the way that the the, the planet works um she just rebooted time and again. Yeah, yeah. There were some uh, stunning lines as well, including one. Um, I think it went something like, in space, no one can hear the, the screams of an ancient Earth god. I think something like that. and Or no one can hear an ancient Earth god scream, I think it was. Um, yeah. And I don't, know, I don't know if you know, but the first episode of this podcast was that the prompt was, in space, no one can hear you scream. Um. So it would have almost worked for the very first episode of this podcast as well, which was very cool. Hell of a person to to be on the wrong side of as well, Poseidon. There's so much, so much power to water, and I have this genuine fear of places like the Mariana Trench because we just can't <laughs> see the bottom. We can see further into space than we can into our own water. So the the idea of the ocean as your nemesis is it it just works brilliantly because i think there is some innate human nature element of fearing mm. the depths so does that mean that uh, i'll move into the skyscraper and we'll throw you in the trench don't you dare <laughs> they don't even have eyes in there ben <laughs> well i can see lake michigan from here <laughs> there you go then we'll just dunk him there do they have eyes in lake michigan <laughs> the uh this idea of possibly her uh, or or them, I don't think, don't know whether they were gendered actually at any point. Apart, no, they were called a harridan, which is quite typically a, it's a sort of it's an insult on women, isn't it, in ancient mm -hmm. times? So possibly, although we, I guess we don't know if they rebooted uh, at all into, into different states. But um, this idea of being a um, almost like a like a harbinger of natural disasters, I wasn't entirely sure whether they were following her around initially. Um, well, like... Yeah, some of these were, were actual events. I mean, the, the port of Falara in Greece was wiped out by a, um, a, uh, a tsunami. Yeah. Um, the Spanish Armada was lost on the shores of Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, so those were real. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I mean, the, the character, I wasn't sure whether like she was mm. some kind of herald of Poseidon. That was her curse. 
Um, but yeah, this idea that she was instead like locked in a in a battle with him um, was really cool. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Just on the tsunami as well, the um, the turn of phrase uh, stained brown by its plunder. I think mm. that was really evocative because I think we've all seen like the aftermath of natural disasters in terms of footage, you know, on news sites or whatever. Um, and there is that just like horrible brown color with just bits of debris and people's lives floating in it. Um, that that really that really got through to me that one. Leaving nothing but the the buried spoils of the baker as well. <laughs> as if yeah, prove the truth of her words. Oh, oh, the um, and fi- yeah, and finally the uh, the idea that a god, you know, an ancient earth god can't escape the gravity well was mm-hmm. was very fun. I, I enjoyed that. Oh, and and secular sea that was a that was a favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> she was mm-hmm. like. She's like, fuck you, I'm going to go and make a secular sea. <laughs> but yeah, just, she was too I, nice to swear, but she would have. <laughs> <laughs> but a really nice idea, you know, of the something being as powerful as a god on Earth, but the expanse of the universe being so great that actually he, he did become pitiable. Poseidon was, mm-hmm. at the end, trapped. And she made her mm-hmm. own freedom. Yeah, just really nicely rounded. Yeah, it had, it had a... A lot of gravitas to it as well, and, and very well told. So thank you. Thank you. I had fun writing this. Good. I yeah. took the uh, prompt and then a couple of other random prompts that I have. For example, I have some dice, and you can roll them, and you get they have different little pictures on them. And took a picture and added that to it. Oh right, okay. And mm-hmm. what are these like? Um, almost like story beats. These dice. It, it, yeah, it's um, called Story Dice. I forget the exact... Ah, here we are. Story Cubes. And it's actually a game that you can play and tell stories. Oh, that sounds really fun. Sounds very us. Yeah, I think we'll have to, we'll have, we'll have to grab that. Maybe we'll play a game for the picture on it. Oh, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let's, uh, let's move on to our final story for the, uh, the episode. Oh, jeez. Beep, beep, bingle, beep. We're just barging in a moment to tell you about something cool. 200,000 book titles are published every year in the UK. Just 17% of these are lucky enough to get a decent marketing budget and make it to the bestsellers list. Among the other 83% are many amazing books and authors that remain undiscovered. Shockingly, it's estimated that 70 million of these books are destroyed each year in the UK alone. A box of stories wants to change that. By scanning thousands of titles and using real reader recommendations, their algorithm saves these brilliant books from being lost forever by curating a box of four surprise books. You could even pick the genre of the box, like historical fiction or crime. Discovering new work has never been easier or more exciting, and a box of stories has saved more than 100,000 books already. To receive £4 off of your first box, Use the code TINY when you check out at www.aboxofstories.com. That's TINY, all in lowercase, at www.aboxofstories.com. Now let's get back to our stories. Beep, bangle, beep, beep. (laughs) Rebooting. The fiercely illuminated void that follows the explosion is almost indescribable. It's not that there's nothing, it's it's more like the opposite. Too much. Too much light, too much sound. It's like my brain is screaming at me and and all that excess volume is, is flooding into whatever's connected to it. I couldn't tell you if it's been... Five seconds or a month when things start to become clear again. I'm so disorientated. It's obvious too quickly that everyone else is gone. I can see part of Staves. It's probably a leg. Crushed between two of the tank's armoured plates. Fuck. The structures all folded in. Like an empty tinny against a squaddy's forehead. We knew that our role has an incredibly high mortality rate. 
it's obviously dangerous. But, you know, you, you see the veterans on the newscasts and they're old and grizzled and fucking nails and you say, that's me. This couldn't happen to me. I strain to listen through the tinny whining my ears and I can hear its footsteps booming. When the call came in that we had an atmospheric breach, we were all pretty excited. Staves and Cortez had been taking bets on who would kill it. And now... Now they were fucking paced. I'd wanted to be a defender for as long as I could remember. It was a pretty new profession when I was born. It just seemed so... heroic and glamorous. You were the first line when something ugly dropped in. You were the gunner that stood between a thousand metric tons of alien carapace and poor old Granny Groggins. You fire those cannons so she can knit another day, right? I was in boot for about a month when the reality of that shit started peeling away the gloss. Propaganda can only take you so far. Talk to people who've dealt with Titan strikes and... That takes the edge off. All we really do is try and piss the things off long enough that they stay away from densely populated areas until one of the Seraphim turn up. Seraphim. Now there is a sweet fucking gig. First time I saw one of those bad boys was the parade they had through what used to be the Midlands. I was nine at the time. And obviously I'd seen them on newscasts, but in person, oh, there's nothing like it. You couldn't see the tops, you know? They were, they were so tall, everything from the chest up would bleed into the smog of industry. But you could feel the footsteps, miles away though they were, rumbling through you. It felt like my heart changed its beat to go with them. Perfectly engineered machines of defense was how they described them. No, no one liked using words like war. War was reserved for humankind turning on its own. We didn't do that anymore. It was history. We had a common enemy now in the Titans. And all of our kind were stepping up to stop them. Or, you know. Just keep living while those of us who sign up try and stop them. But it changed me. Seeing them. It became everything I wanted to pilot one. To fire white-hot plasma through the shell of a titan so that my mum could rest easy at night. A scan of the remaining parts of our system tell me there isn't much left. The blast from the titan has somehow missed the reactor nestled at the back of the machine. It's got to be the only reason I've survived. That thing taking a blast would have turned me into particles before I'd even heard the roar. As it was... It was my squad who'd been obliterated. I glance through the open hole where the hull had once been. I see the rest of the ground fleet has been destroyed too. I turn to see more. And the realisation of pain shoots through me. I'm pinned at the waist. I don't need to be from the med corps to know that whatever the fuck this slab of metal used to be, it's currently acting as the thing that holds the organs in my upper torso. I don't know why I do it, but I reach for the handles on the cannon. I have to try and do something, don't I? It's my duty. I can't hear if it's scanning my fingertips or not. The ringing's too fierce, but the screen at the weapon's base lights up. Refracted through the shattered reticule, I see the word rebooting. I feel the rumble of the reactor underneath me. It fires up as the beams inside begin slicing particles. Percentage appears, obscured but single digits. Swallow desperately, trying to trigger that popping sensation in my ears, desperate to hear the sounds of battle. I'm praying for the steady boom of an approaching hero. Part of me still believes it. Still hears my dad telling me, Well, save us all, boy.
as he helped pin posters of celebrity pilots on my bedroom ceiling. It hastily forgets overhearing his drunken sobs. His pleas to a god I didn't believe in for the salvation of an endless menace. I cling to that hope. Like it's the last rung before an inky pit. They have to come. They have to save us. Me. They have to save me. The reactor is purring loud enough that it cuts through the tinnitus now. And I feel its heat on my back. Wait, no, that isn't good. If heat is getting out, then one of the container seals must be breached. I can't turn to look. And I don't know if I would want to. It's no wonder I never made pilot. I'm a coward. Dead before dawn in the first wave of defense. No. Stop it. Focus. The percentage is up now. Double digits. Pretty sure it's somewhere in the 60s. Might be 80s, but I don't think I'm that lucky. I try and focus on anything that isn't the spreading pool of gore around me. I'm moving too much. I'm coughing and I feel something hot splash over my chin. This is it. This is fucking it. I can do something though. I can. I can slow the titan down. I'll make dad proud. I'll protect mum. I miss you so much, dad. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Breathe. What did he always say? No point making a song and dance of it, lad. It's such a funny expression, that. When I was small, he'd do a little jig and I'd, I'd copy it back at him. The half-hearted way he'd moved his arms the last time he did it, encumbered as he was with all those tubes, had been anything but funny. I held his hand until it went limp. Promised him I'd be a pilot, that I'd climb into one of the engines of hope he'd spent his last thirty years building, and give him payback. I looked past the fact it was our own reactors. His years of handling fission materials that had done him in. A noble sacrifice. All for the greater good. A beep cuts through the ringing in my ears and the screen lights up. Ready to fire. I feel myself slide away from my lower half as I reel for the dual triggers. And with what I have left, I begin to squeeze as hard as I can. Quarter second squeeze for a quick burst of fire. Two second squeeze for a bolt that would disintegrate a man. Five second burst at maximum to crack the carapace of a titan. Never more. But I don't count. I can't count. I squeeze. I scream. I feel the metal around me begin to bubble. And the soft tissue at the base of my torso sears and begins to bake against the platform. I can hear my own screaming now. I can taste death in the air. And then there it is. So far away. I don't hear it so much as feel it. In my soul. The seraphim have arrived. The day will be won. Humanity lives to fight again. I let it out. The tears, the pain, the final screams. Time, I hope, is bought. It's too fast for me to feel it, but there's something. A sensation of speed and light and danger, and I hope it sees me. I hope that it feels my wrath. I hope that gigantic fuckhole bleeds for me and Staves and Cortex and Dad. And then I'm gone. Damn, son. 
the uh, the 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 huge obviously the huge performance there of that was uh, that really really sold the story. But I think the actual writing itself was quite strong as well. You know this really cool scenario where you've got these titans dropping in and these massively engineered seraphims and the defenders. I was in from the moment you um, from when you were using stuff like empty tinnies being you know like. Uh, crushed against a squaddy's head and stuff like yeah it felt it felt very real from that moment um and this just utter like panic attack fear meltdown that this guy is having when he's been crushed and he's got a reactor bleeding behind him and he, he you know he's about to be stepped on by a titan like oh it felt very much like i was in the room and i really didn't want to be in that room <laughs> i uh i've made no secret of the fact that i love kind of like kaiju and giant mech stories Mm. And I really, you know, I've I've never really seen one that was from the perspective of the little man. Maybe a few Warhammer bits, you know, you see the the odd Imperial Guard soldier and there's a huge Titan. But the thought of being just completely useless, in theory, in this war was so intriguing to me. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, my voice is a bit shaky. I got so wow. into that that I'm <laughs> still in. I'm still there. I'm still exploding. <sighs> oh, yeah. The, as soon as you said that he he could feel the heat or something, I was like, no, that's a reactor. No, 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. no, that's no, a, no. That's a bad thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, like sort of using up so much power that he sort of welds himself to the metal that's already killed him is just. I, uh, when I wrote that bit about him being bifurcated by the metal plate, yeah. I did think of you as I wrote it. And I, that's, <laughs> it's a little unsettling, really. <laughs> but I thought, yeah, that's a very Ben image. Hmm. A little unsettling. <laughs> this reminds me of Ben. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's Ben. <laughs> oh, what did you make of it, Sue? Um, I, I was fascinated and, and captivated by the the contact contrast the noble sacrifice and the reality is that he's just dying yeah and yeah possibly for what he had hoped to do but not exactly yeah he, he was definitely clutching at straws wasn't he he was mm-hmm. gone not thinking clearly but capable of doing something and that something was you hope impactful um that yeah that you, you mentioned contrast like the way that we went from in, inside this guy's story to him seeing you know, the the uh, the propaganda street parades where these seraphim are so so big that he can't even see the upper half of them because because of the smog clouds of his like engineer factory town um to uh like the, the actual horror of like he he doesn't even get to really see them at the end. He just hit, you know, you can just feel them, hear them. Uh, I I liked that. Like I, I liked it a lot. Like it's it, it's it's the stuff that he wasn't seeing that was that was yeah. actually working, rather than the stuff that he could see, which was just a really really messed up scenario that he was not getting out of, yeah. and that all of his mates had died in. I think if I'd had more word count, I definitely would have expanded on that sort of industrial hometown element of it. Because mm, yeah, it, it no, came in. Definitely later in the writing process and you know like his his dad having worked in one of the factories and that made him sick and Mm -hmm. he's in that little gray town where they parade them through once and then you never see him again even though these people have to make them it's such an an interesting part of that kind of story that doesn't yeah i i don't see very often i i really liked exploring that a little bit yeah maybe it's one to come back to again like you know, we don't get these stories often from the the grunts' perspective, but we also don't get them from the uh, inside the engineering bays, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Very. Um, very cool. Very evocative. I, I thoroughly had a lot of fun. It sort of every every time you you were describing something, it felt like it was going to get really heavy metal really fast, and then he would, you know, have a really heartfelt memory about his dad, or or panic some more, or freak himself out by thinking about his injuries, and yeah, it, like he just he never got. To the point, really, where he could just, you know, do what you see from people like this do in movies, where they just, they just go for it, do they? Like he was always, he was always afraid. 
Yeah, he never hit the get some. No, he never hit get some. Um, the the bit with his dad uh, doing the little the like limp dance thing. Don't make a song and dance about it. And then he's doing it when he's dying in the hospital bed. That yeah. was a real, as you say, it happened a bit later on in the in the story. Um, but it made everything else hit a lot harder. So yeah, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thanks for thanks for doing that. Bad. Well, that's that's the yeah. stories. We've been storied. But now it's time absolutely to, been storied. We've been storied <laughs> into the ground. Uh, but it's it's time to begin the grilling of Sue. Sue, are you prepared? <laughs> right. I'm ready. Ben, get out the barbecue sauce. The grill is on. Barbecue sauce in action. What are you reading at the moment, Sue? Uh, right now, I'm reading. I'm reading um, stories nominated for um, the Nebula Awards. And because I am a member of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and I start out with the short fiction because I can do that because I only have a month, and not too many people vote on that, so I'm more important. <laughs> You've got the swing vote. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And there's uh, in the novelette, there's a story called The Pill by Meg Ellison, and there's a pill that cures obesity. But it might kill you, might not. It's an acceptable <laughs> loss. And and the way that it just handles the questions of our attitudes toward obesity, it, it just stabs them with a scalpel. Um, and it's what science fiction can do is look at what we're doing in a really hard way and use a metaphor to attack. Mm. All the things we're doing wrong. People would rather die than be fat. Mm. Examining these like uh, societal um, problems, mm -hmm. as you say, it's something. It's a really cool thing that science science fiction can do. Do you um and, and so you, I think you do, you must do this every year then um, reading reading a whole raft of uh, short fiction. Yes, I do. I generally read a lot of of short fiction, but right this year they have a. a um, in in the nebula and pretty much it's it's a very good overlap with what the hugos which were just announced um a good selection of short fiction uh, from horror to um, fantasy to really hard science fiction so it's a good introduction to what the field can do oh very cool um that's oh, yeah. yeah that's that's fascinating that is we're firmly on award-winning books here, so segues beautifully into me asking you, what's the best book you've ever read? I was afraid you would ask me that. Living um, fear. <laughs> I honestly can't say because I like different books for different reasons, and you know, and and there's also you know, like I started reading Youngs when you're 12 years old. The book that that hits you when you're 12. Is not going to be the same necessarily when you're older. Mm. Um, so it's... I don't have a good answer. I can only say that I've got shelves of books that um, I took across the ocean to me with me. And I kept them from seven for 17 years, and I took them back because I want to keep them forever. We'll go with a, a quick fire version of it then. One of my titans arrives. You've got time to grab one book off that shelf right now to take with you. Which do you grab? I don't know if it would be Joanna Russ or um, hmm, Ursula Le Guin. Is there any reason why in particular? I think um, The Female Man by um, Joanna Russ came at the right time, which was the 1970s yeah. when feminism was was starting up and it was a real struggle back then i mean if when i was looking for a job there was help wanted men and help wanted women in the newspaper oh, there were schools oh. i couldn't go for, go to there were jobs i could not have um and so there was just a lot of anger and that book expressed the anger of that moment so well do you feel like do you feel like that's had a big part in how you write that uh, your experience with sexism in that way i don't it, 
varies which the story I'm trying to tell. Yeah. And life has changed um, for the better. Um, but what I did like about it, what I was impressed about it, was the way that it, it took the issue and sort of turned it around um, and examined it from the inside. And what I liked was that. Um, and quite a number of writers, as, as I said, the, the, the short story, The Pill, uses science fiction in that way. And what I was impressed with was the power of the storytelling. A strong answer, I'd say. Yeah, and you know this this idea of uh, uh, powerful storytelling is often built off characters. So, if if you could, I know it's it's a difficult thing to do, especially you know when you've got so many books that have that you've taken with you um, across the ocean and back. Um, is there a is there a particular favorite literary character of yours that stands out from the? Uh... That's a tough one because character is so wrapped up in story. So they. You, you don't um you don't have like uh, like uh, i think archetypes is the wrong word but you don't have a story that just sort of stands taller than the the novels that if, you enjoyed them in yeah if i could cosplay would would i be that person yeah yeah i i don't know i really can't it would depend on the day i think and, yeah. and i just don't i can't answer that that's okay um Let's uh, let's move on to how you know uh, Nico mentioned it before. Like you know what's affected the way that you tell your stories. What is your actual writing process when you come to you come to write a, write a novel or a short story? Is it different for e each medium? Or... I usually start with what if stories. I what if questions and semiosis, which was one of my novels, which was what if plants could think. Mm -hmm then what would they do? Uh, the novel that comes out on May 4th is what would ordinary people do in a horrible disaster? And how would it be different for different people? And then a lot went on from there. So does, it, but, does, that, does that turn into an almost um, sort of like a mind map of, you know, what would ordinary people do? Would they go for food? You know, and do, do, do you sort of find the, you know, you mentioned before that character is tied very strongly to story for you. Um, does the story and characters that, it, that it's a part of emerge from that, that what if scenario during like, um, does that happen on paper or does that just happen in your head? Um, it, I find it very, very hard to start a story. Um, and they, they come together bit by bit. Um, the story that I just read um, I decided it was going to be a story of someone going through um, time, and there was a disaster. And if we're going to start early, then maybe Greece. Well, there was Cassandra, and no one listened to her. And so starting with someone no one was listening to, and what would her response be? Not to be heard. And what wasn't she being heard about? Um, so I wish I had a fast way to do that, but it just takes a lot of thought and a lot of rewrites and a lot of tries. Well, it was a very strong story. So clearly, um, clearly sometimes going the long way around is, is beneficial. Um, I eventually find them just not fast enough. <laughs> find there's any sort of layover skills from when you were working as a journalist when it comes to writing your stories, or are they completely separate skill sets for you? Um, the, the writing does, just, just the writing skills. What can, because when you're writing in, in journalism, you have to explain things to people. Um, and again, you have to do that in, in fiction. And presumably they don't know what you're talking about. And to find ways to work that in. In journalism, there tends to be in a news story sort of a, a structure, but that's just because you have to write something and, okay, you have one hour and fine. Um, so you can't invent a whole new way to do it. But um, in fiction, structure does mean a lot to me, but there are many structures to choose from. Um, so this one I started, it was going to be episodic, and the, there was going to be disaster, then there was going to be another disaster, 
and then some um, background working out of the disaster into a solution. Sounds like you've you've worked across multiple medium that we know. So I'm going to set you a medium-based challenge. If you could adapt a book, any book of your choice, it can be one of your own, someone else's, one of ours if we'd ever written any. Whoops. <laughs> uh, so you can take a book, you can adapt it into any other medium. So that could be film, it could be opera, it could be a mockumentary, a flavor of rice pudding, anything you like. Hmm. What book would you attack? Attack? What book would you adapt to what medium and why? Well, here's where I go back to journalism. I like to have an editor who says, do this. And <laughs> so then I, um, it saves me a whole lot of choices. Um, I guess it's on my mind. Okay, so um, The Female Man by Joanna yeah. Russ, because I was just thinking about that. Um, that, again, is also a somewhat episodic story. So you could, hmm do it as a very brief tv series tv has changed a lot and now you can do that sort of a thing yeah. we're in a golden age of tv i don't even watch much of it but i know that um in a movie it seems to me there are four acts to that you know what would be good this would be good on a play on a theater because okay. there are so many intense emotions and you think you can do that on a movie, but it's not the same as being there no, you, um, and having right. someone confront you. Mm. And I think because this is such an intense book, it would have to be on a theater, on a stage. Do you have anyone as a dream casting for the lead? I don't know. There's few people in it. Um, one of them has steel claws. Um, so... I think what I need is actually a, a dream customer. Yeah. Costume designers or effects mm -hmm. artists, perhaps. Mm hmm. Yeah. And staging could be interesting. And the staging could be pretty sparse, as I recall from that. Um, but I think that would be a lot of fun for a theater production. This idea of. Um... Uh, really putting the audience in an emotional space where they have to be confronted by by the strong feelings of the uh, the work, whether it's a, a play or the book that the pet play is based on. Um, that kind of leads us into the next question, which is, um, when did you last cry whilst reading a reading a novel? Trying to recall. <laughs> it's not something that everybody does, as we found out through this season. I uh, do. You do. I'm trying to recall when that was. It wasn't that long ago. I say, is it because it's so frequent or because it's extremely infrequent? Or um, perhaps rather than the, you know, the exact novel and when it was, uh, you know, what is it that, that triggers that response for you in fiction? Like when you sort of suspend your, uh, your perhaps journalistic mind, does that, is that when you can really get into it? Or how does it work for you to actually allow a book to make you, to make you cry? And when when I feel really deeply for the um, for the character here, it is is the last. It's Open House House on Haunted Hill by John Wiswell. Mm -hmm. It's um, one of the short stories up for the Nebula, and I think also for the the Hugo. And it's this haunted house, and it wants so much to have a family that it will do anything. And it's just I felt so sorry for that poor house. And it's it's you know inventing rooms. It's it's yeah, within what limited things it can do, and it loves this family, and it's not going to hurt them. But everything it does is creepy. <laughs> I know how it feels. That's a really cool idea—a sentient haunted house that just wants to be friends. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I could I could see that. Um, sort of spooky room of requirement. Across yeah, the whole house, yeah, yeah. sure. I can see it. There's, there's something about giving um, inanimate objects, uh, you know, the, these kind of like human human desires that can actually make them uh, very easy to identify with. I think possibly, or at least mm -hmm. you know, make it easier for people to do so. Um, 
and yeah, no, I've, I've definitely, I must have done something like that before in terms of, you know, like, oh no, this this bucket, I can't, I can't deal with how this bucket is being treated in this story. You know, like, it, I'm sure that must have happened to me. I'm, I'm dreadful for, if I see a, a stuffed toy that's been made badly, so it's got a gammy hand or one of the eyes. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. straight. I've got, we have a, a long cat called Elongus. <laughs> I know, uh, but one of its paws doesn't have any stuffing in, so I, I'm absolutely besotted with the bloody thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> which is so uh, so very uh, toxic masculinity of me. No, I hate it. Don't like stuff. No, I love it. I love stuffed toys, but uh, yeah, the the fact that it's just a little bit rubbish makes me that poor love cat it. has to limp around the house. It doesn't. It's so long. It takes ages. <laughs> And I'm only little, so it's nearly as tall as me, the bloody thing. I think we're starting to get towards a horror film at this stage. It's like a gimping, <laughs> inanimate cat object that's as big as you are, that, that walks around the house. And it just wants me? to be loved. <laughs> Please, father. <laughs> well, before we get too far into my uh, my nightmares for this evening, can you tell me one really uninteresting fact about you? I hate to wear shoes and socks. Now, is this, you don't like to wear them indoors or at all, if possible? At all. And is it a combination thing? So could you wear, are you okay to just wear shoes or just wear socks, but you don't like wearing them both together? I don't like either one of them. I love to go barefoot. Living that naked foot life. I'm about that. So yeah, yeah. And I live in a, a place where there's sometimes two feet of snow on the ground, so I don't get to... <laughs> you must have very tough feet. <laughs> I own shoes and boots. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be difficult to be, a, to be a hobbit in Chicago, even though they are a hardy folk. You see people in shorts in January. I don't know what's wrong with them. Uh, sometimes I actually do that. Um, I think it's just me being contrary, though. Uh, I never enjoy it when I do it. You know, it's almost like, oh, I think I could get away with wearing shorts in December today. Oh, yeah. So you do it just because you can. But uh, very, but however, we don't get as such uh, serious weather as uh, you do in Illinois. I used um, to wear them all year round, shorts, and then the band took the mick out of me so much that I stopped doing it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I pressured out of wearing shorts. I, copped, I kept turning up at gigs in the north in February in little shorts. Now I, I need to stop. You have Wait, a how... problem. How little are we talking? Like, like knee short? length. Oh, right. Okay. Pants. I thought you meant like little, like, like Daisy shorts. Dukes. Yeah. <laughs> the pockets hanging out the bottom. Yeah, man. I've got to sell that booty. <laughs> That's right. Rock and roll works. Oh, of course. Oh, well, um, so, so we, we've spoken about it a couple of times, but you have actually got some, you've got a novel coming out next, uh, next, well, very shortly, in fact. And by the time mm-hmm. it gets it will already be out. Um, would you like to tell, tell us about what, um, what that's about? Well, it's called Immunity Index. And um, it's been described as a thriller by a recent reviewer. Wasn't what I... Well, I, I started writing it in March of 2018. And I was thinking about science fiction things. And I thought, well, you know, we're pandemic. That's a standard sort of trope and so coronavirus that could be a pretty good pandemic and then things happened but it's set in the united states it's on the edge of a revolution and there are three sisters who discover they are clones which are second class citizens they didn't know that and then there's a sudden coronavirus epidemic um there's a woolly mammoth in there too um, there's a okay, tighter plot than it sounds like. The woolly mammoth, he's really cute, except that, well, he's like five tons. But that sounds that's wild. the story. These... <laughs> I think that sounds great. I'm sorry, what's it called again for me? Immunity Index. Immunity Index, okay, we'll look out for that. Immunity, well, um, yes. The, uh, I love the idea of uh, clones being... Uh, like as a as a I don't not generally I just mean as a story device. Uh, I love the mm-hmm. idea of clones being a second class citizens. That's always a a really cool uh, a cool thing to deal with. Um, ben is horrible to his clones. I'm, yeah, I'm really awful mm-hmm. to my clones. He whips them. Um, 
Um, oh, I, I kind of want to ask you, ask you a question about your book, but I don't want to spoil the book. I don't suppose if, if this is going to spoil it, then don't answer it. But does the the pandemic that happens inside your novel affect clones differently than it does originals? No. Okay. Cool. Because that would have been not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really? No. They're you, just you, basic human beings. Yeah. You're not trying to write a novel that skirts copyright because you now want to write this story, are you, Ben? <laughs> yes! Take a look. And then what colours the mammoth? Uh, okay, yeah, cool. and a, a woolly mammoth. So if I was to shave a mammoth, then we'd be okay. Oh, see, now the woolly mammoth sounds cute. An enormous shaven mammoth is horrifying. <laughs> like a mole That rat. would be bad. On steroids. Mm. So if people want to ask you what colour your mammoth is, <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be the worst way I've ever asked that question. If people do want to find you online so they can tweet lovely things at you or send you emails, where can they find you? Let's see, on um I have a website. It's um uh, what is my website? You think I would know these things, but I don't <laughs> my website is it's suburk.site. Suburk.site. And are there any social media platforms people can get you? On Twitter, I am Suburk Spain. Very cool. Marvelous. Um, and with Immunity Index coming out on the on uh, May 4th, uh, May the 4th be with you and all that. Thank um, you. But, but you've also got um, already out, you've got uh, Semiosis, which was extremely well received, is my, how I understand that one. Um, mm hmm and that that's part of a trilogy isn't it so you've got interference and then there's a third one coming out soon it will come out but not anytime soon oh not anytime oh. soon my bad yeah. nope nope 2024 2024 but i can tell you how it ends <laughs> yeah i mean if you want to do it everybody there, lives or... happily ever after oh crikey okay i'm beeping mm. out <laughs> <laughs> much too happily oh well i'm not sure i believe you <laughs> <laughs> All uh, the survivors live happily ever after. <laughs> oh, don't they always? Oh. Smug. Smug survivors, I find. Those smug survivors. Oh, always surviving. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Sue. And we, the, I've got to say again, your story was really good. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm glad to have uh, gotten to know you a bit better as well. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's quite all right. See you again. You take all care. Right. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your chosen service so that you don't miss out on future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, where you can talk to us directly and even suggest prompts for upcoming stories. If you're not a tweeter, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Just search for The Tiny Bookcase. Now, if you want to support the podcast, and we'd really appreciate it if you did, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the tiny bookcase. And then you can be just as special as these story seekers. Do we thank them? I think so. Well, then it's a huge thank you to the legendary Matthew McLaren and the absolutely epic Scott Byrne for their support. Thanks for listening. Catch you next Catch week. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> Make it slimy. <laughs> Make it slimy, Nick.